0: meeting in order to plan this out and I don't even know that maybe we should because it seems to work so well Uh, we might mess it up if we try Um, but today's sermon um, topic um, really is is, uh, it's entitled overcoming divisions overcoming divisions and so we're gonna look at a very familiar passage in John chapter 4 verses 3 through 30 and it's the passage on the woman at the well the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus meets Um, but we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different lens. Um, You all know that I work in different parts of the world, um, and I have the opportunity then to uh, be in fellowship with Christians in many other places from many traditions, Um, and we have a chance to to share in terms of how we look and read scripture and what God is doing in different parts of the world, and you know that I've been working uh, with a team in Beirut, Lebanon over the past week, Um, so I'd like to to speak a little about uh, you know, what's going on there as, as it il- is sort of illustrating and illustrating being illustrated in scripture, um, but also it's got some messages and some encouragement for us um, on this side of the planet um, because we're facing a bit of a different context here, but the dynamics are not too dissimilar, um, but God's solution and God's word is the same and it applies across the world. Uh, so we'll listen with maybe some new ears and a fresh perspective today to something that we're very familiar with. So on overcoming divisions, I like to start with a bit of a, uh, a story um, to sort of set the stage for where we're gonna go with the passage. Um, so there's, there's an author, um, I like to watch uh, book TV, which is basically the most boring TV show there, there is, okay? But it's authors talking about the books that they've written. Um, and this one author was talking about a book that she had written years back. Uh, and it's a, a real person, a story about a real person named Big Annie Clements, Big Annie Clements. Um, And Big Annie Clements lived in the early 1900s. She actually was um, almost lost to history. So not many people know about her, Uh, but there are some historians that were doing some work trying to do uh, an examination of what we call the the copper strikes in 1913, 1913 and 1914, there were a series of strikes that went on in copper mines. Uh, in the upper peninsula of Michigan. I used to live in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Um, And Big Annie earned this name because basically she was a tall woman. She was six foot, three inches tall. um, And she was one of the people who lived in the mining communities in that area. In the mining communities of that area in that time, um, mining work was dangerous. It was quite perilous. And so Big Annie and her husband who lived amongst these communities uh, she would earn a few extra coins every here and now because she would work within the company, the mining company, filing its paperwork. And so what she started to notice in filing the paperwork though over, over years is, wow, this is dangerous work and a number of people do die in the mines, in mining accidents. But she, as she filed the death notices in the company, she notices that there were many more death notices than people were actually talking about in the communities. Many more people were actually dying than people were actually aware of because the communication of those who would have passed away seems so much less than the number of people who are actually dying in these mines. And so what she began to sort of grapple with, she began to realize people don't know just how dangerous this work is. They don't know how perilous the job actually is because what the owners of the mine have done is they set things up in the societies so that it has kept people separate and divided. So in the mining communities, the owners would actually build the houses for the miners, set up the schools for the children of the miners, actually put churches in place for the the miners' communities. And they did it in such a way where they actually kept people quite separate. So they would build one community or neighborhood, put certain miners there, they would hire in from particular immigrant groups, and then for a different community, They do the same in hiring from a different immigrant community. The languages would be different. They wouldn't be able to understand each other. They gave them separate schools. They gave them separate churches. And that was particularly key that they would give them separate churches. So everybody would go to their respective churches to worship. And the key with the separate churches were, that means there were separate cemeteries connected to those churches. So as deaths would happen in the various communities, the other communities would have no idea of the total number of deaths that were happening in the mines. And so this is what the owners actually used then to keep people unaware of just how dangerous things were um, so that people obviously did not then rally and lobby for safer working conditions, which would cost money. And it also introduced a number of um, tensions between the groups because they didn't understand each other. Competition would be high and this actually benefited the owners as well. And so they could keep wages low and they wouldn't have to shell out money in order to develop the safety mechanisms. And this is how they acquired their fortunes. And so Big Annie, um, as the person who was kind of aware that this is how this division was actually serving the, the owners, but actually keeping the people themselves down and in peril, she had she, she had, had it one day. And here's the thing that, that caused her to snap her husband was late coming home from work and the miners they got off of their shifts, shifts and they, they showed up at the house like clockwork. And, and she said, the experience of your husband, not walking through the door, when you are aware of how dangerous the situation is and what that could mean, she says her, her mind, it went, went, you know, to the worst, of course, he's not home. And she said, for, for, for the next few minutes, while waiting and seeing what was going on, it, she says it felt like hours. And her mind went to places of you know her being destitute without her husband now in early 1900s, obviously, and what that would mean. And she would join the ranks of so many other women that she knew of who had lost their spouses and then become destitute as a part of how dangerous this work was in these communities. And she said after a while, she just couldn't bear it anymore. Um, And she just tried to do things to keep her mind, but her husband hadn't come through the door yet. And she says that she was trying to steady herself and sort of preoccupy her mind with other things. She heard footsteps coming up the front walk onto the porch. And that could be either good or bad. She said, but she didn't hear a knock at the door. Instead, the door came open. In walks her husband. But he had this look on his face that she knew meaning there was an accident at the mine that day. And while her husband was spared, somebody in the community was not. So one of his coworkers, a close friend had died. One of the retaining walls had come down on him. And she says, that's what caused her to snap. Just all of that fear translated not into relief when he walked in the door, but into rage when she saw that even though she herself was not facing that anguish that day, another member of her community was. And so she figured out ways then to do something about this. And what she did was she started to organize meetings across all these communities. And even though people didn't speak the languages, she then relied on the kids who were born in the US, who actually knew the language to actually do the translation for their parents, much like we see today in immigrant communities where the parents don't speak English. And at these meetings that she would organize, she she would lead off with one question, one question for all the copper miners and their wives and their kids who were there. She would ask this question, what is the cost of copper? What is the cost of copper? And the translations would go through the meetings. And then eventually somebody would speak up, well, 15 and a half cents a pound. She'd respond, no, what is the cost of copper? And eventually people would actually start to understand her question, which was what was not the price of copper is not what she was asking. What is the cost of copper? And then one by one, you could hear people across the room start to speak up as they understood her question. And one widow would respond, my husband. Someone else would respond, my son. Someone else would say, my brother and people began to see just how many folks in their community around them has actually lost loved ones and been bereaved because of the dangerous situations that were going on. And this is actually what led to the successful strike in 1913 and 14 as the communities came into the awareness of just how much was expected and extracted from them in these situations to their disadvantage. And while this was a successful strike that people are now going back and understanding, the key with this that stands out for me is, but in order for them to be successful and save lives and make lives better, they had to overcome their divisions. Their divisions had to be overcome for them to actually experience life, to actually experience saving and improvement. Hold on to this frame because when we talk about overcoming our divisions, number one, this is something that is a problem that continues to exist. I think, you know, we, we, we talk about it fairly regularly and in, in today's age, we can kind of see if you just turn on the news polarization that's happening, but this is not something that's new just with today. And as a matter of fact, when we look at the history of our country, you know, schools have been segregated for a long time and when we thought desegregation would happen. We're in a time now where schools are are segregating once again and probably even more so in some ways. And why that might be and how we can sort of turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to certain segments of our communities um, as long as it just doesn't affect us. And the same thing applies not just to schools but to neighborhoods and and same, worse still, churches. Just like they they focused on keeping separate churches back in the early 1900s for, for no good reason. But for bad reasons, we, we have churches that continue to evidence, you know, the segregation that really has sort of been the hallmark, unfortunately, of this country when you look at it from, from an outside perspective. Whereas Sunday is typically the most segregated time within this country. People go to their respective enclaves. They're not talking to one another. And this is being reflected in the church, in the church. It's likely to only get more intense as our election comes up. And we may be surprised at the things we may hear. We may be surprised at our neighbors in terms of just sort of the vehemence that they may actually react with around certain things. But, But none of this is new. None of this is new. We're not experiencing anything that humanity has not experienced before and that God has not already provided an answer and a solution for. This is an old problem that just doesn't go back in this country. It goes back to the dawn of humanity. When we think about division, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And when they disobeyed God, how division actually came to be the hallmark of the relationship between God and humanity as a result of disobedience. And as a result of that breach, then we also started to see relationships between people take on that same division, take on that same enmity. When we see Cain who kills his brother Abel and on and on and on, we can see how there's been this prelude that has just been passed down through the years and we now exist in a time where division, unfortunately, is the norm. And in times where we might make some gains, you know, we can see a rolled back so easily because it's almost like in our DNA, we live in a time and we live in a, a fallen world. But God has prepared a solution. God has prepared the solution for this and the antidote for this division is clearly presented in the kingdom work that we see in jesus christ in the model that he gives us and so through christ god absolutely restores the relationship between humanity and god and as a result of that through the work of christ we can also expect to see how god also reconciles humanity to itself and both of those things need to happen as evidence of god's work as evidence of the holy spirit that empowers us the relationship with god is reestablished and then that has an effect on how then we relate to one another and it starts to reflect the unity of the spirit that god has called us to and these are not simple things these things are actually quite demanding and quite difficult when paul sets the one rule in all the churches and that is Jews stay Jews and Gentiles stay Gentiles, but yet you serve together and you serve Christ in unity, that's a challenge. Different cultures, different contexts, coming together, looking to one Lord, and we've got to work it out like siblings. And you know what sibling relationships can be like. You know, We can have great days and then we have some real knockdown bangouts, but we stay committed to one another. And in the passage that we're going to look at, these are are the dynamics that are being illustrated here because we're going to look at the familiar passage of a Samaritan woman interacting with Jesus who is a Jew. And we know that the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews is one that is marked by enmity and division. But it's so interesting to take a fresh look at this because I don't think sometimes that we appreciate just the nature of that division and what God was doing when he actually used this tale to actually pass on through the generation so that we have it as an example, as, an, as, as a model. Because God didn't just choose an easy division. God went and it seems like he chose the most extreme possible division to illustrate just his power and what is expected of us. So as we turn to John chapter four, let's listen anew and I'm gonna give you a summary because I think we all probably are familiar with, with this passage. You know, and so here we are, Jesus is uh, waiting by a well, and, and along comes the Samaritan woman. So we have the setup, Jesus, the Jew, the woman, a Samaritan who comes by the well where Jesus is waiting. And of course, the enmity that exists between Jews and Samaritans, you know, we were aware of, and then they get into a conversation regardless of that. And as a result of this conversation, what ends up happening is this woman, the Samaritan, ends up actually believing in Jesus. And she then goes and she tells the other people of the city, the other Samaritans, and they come and they interact with Jesus, this Jew. And they ended up believing in Jesus as well. And you have an entire city of Samaritans who then reconcile a relationship with a Jew. And that is a model that we've been given. Jews and Samaritans reconciled. And that's, that's the general story that we're going to look at, but we're going to get into the cultural context of it just to appreciate the power of this. And so I'm going to give you a 40,000 foot overview of, of um, Jewish history, Isra- Israel history, you know, in, in like a minute or two. So, you know, fasten on your seatbelts here. Um, this, is, this is all stuff that I hope you, you know, if, if something is new, please go and look this up because, you know, this is really fascinating stuff to me. Um, but I don't wanna make it boring for you, so I'm gonna give you the overview. So, so consider the, the, the tension between Jews and Samaritans, and, and here's where it starts. Back when God delivered the children of Israel out of slavery from Egypt, 400 years of bondage, God gave them Moses to lead them out, and when they were out in the desert, God actually declared them a nation in a particular place. In that particular place was Mount Gerizim in Samaria. That's where they were gathered, where then Moses divided the people, God declared them a nation, that was the birth of them as Israel as a nation at that point, point. and God gave them blessings at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And then over the years and over the decades and over the centuries after, thereafter, Mount Gerizim in Samaria was the center point of worship for the Israelite people because that's where God declared them a nation, and that's where God actually gave them the blessing. When other invasions would happen amongst the tribes, because they existed as this loose federation of independent tribes, they would come together under particular leaders who would then repel enemies that would be a threat, and those people were called judges. And this is when you read the book of Judges, that was the structure of Israel. After a while though, they actually became quite nervous about the threats around them. And instead of then relying on God to raise up judges, they would sort of reject that idea and say, no, we need to be organized under a monarchy, under a kingship. Therefore, we know here's who we'd rely on and here's what we look to to repel the enemies. We don't have to sort of wait for God, for somebody to show up. And so with that, then they elected Saul as their first king, all of the tribes, came together around Saul. They, they were still based in the Samaria region. They still looked to Mount Gerizim as the center of worship. And then Saul then started to operate in such ways as monarchs do, and not everybody appreciated that. And I'm saying this lightly. <laughs> and then Saul then turned over reins to David. And we all know about King David, the great king. But here's what David ended up doing. David moved the focal point of worship from Mount Gerizim to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. David did that. So if you look at 2, Samuel's chap- 2 Samuel chapter 5, David made that move. And with that move, yes, the people of his tribe, Judah, and another tribe, they were okay with that. But 10 of the other tribes were not okay with that. Some of you probably do have experiences where in churches, we try to make some changes. And that is just one of the most difficult things to do in a church. People resist change particularly when it's around how they worship and try to change the drapes, try to change the color of the carpet. And you can get a church split, let alone try to change the focal point of worship from which God has delivered you out of bondage and, and to make a major move like that. Um, yes, ten tribes had a problem with that. Unaware that God was actually unfolding and setting up the stage for his kingdom to come. And so they make this move The people do not like it, many of them do not like it. And then on top of that, David passes the reins to his son Solomon, who then decides to double down on this move and build the temple in Jerusalem to solidify the focal point of worship in this new place and tax the people who did not want it in order to build it. And we're not talking a simple tax, we're talking a heavy tax, so we can imagine Things that we may actually disagree with on, on a theological, on a spiritual basis, and then we are taxed to actually have to pay for it. That is the breeding ground for a problem. And indeed, after Solomon passes the reins, they can no longer keep the country together, they split. And then you get a northern kingdom of 10 tribes, and you get a southern kingdom, Judah, ruled by the king, at the, the, the Davidic line, David's sons. And so this northern tribe then decides to go back to the good old days. And they take the idea of the capital and they put it back at Mount Gerizim. And they put the capital city back in Samaria. And you know, all, all those other books of the Bible and the prophets that are now talking, um, Isaiah and all those people, they're, they're, they're in favor of this Davidic king line. And so we're gonna reject that and we're gonna keep to the Torah because this is what we had from Moses when God delivered us out, out of Egypt. So we're gonna align with and encapsulate our faith it's practiced by the faith that we actually had when God delivered us out of Egypt. And to them, that seemed right. To them, that seemed right. And actually what we read is in time, they made a series of missteps with the Lord that resulted in Assyria coming in and conquering that northern tribe known as the kingdom of Israel at that time. And they were exiled into Assyria, leaving Samaria quite vacant. And so what the Assyrians did is they brought foreign people in to occupy that land, and they became Sumerians. Those people became Sumerians. Sumerians typically worshipped other gods. They, they included Yahweh in because, you know, you had to. And, and they were quite syn- syncretistic, which means they worshipped a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They weren't true to Yahweh. Um, it was just a hodgepodge. And that's what the area became known as. But what we read in 2 Chronicles though, is not all of the Samaritans who were Israelites were actually exiled. Some had escaped, God preserved a remnant. And that remnant then referred to themselves as the Shomrim, that means the keepers. The keepers of this encapsulated faith that God had delivered them and had given to them in the desert through Moses. And they kept to the Torah. And these are the folks who then looked at the kingdom of Judah and those who followed the Davidic line and looked at them as heretics because they added to the Torah all these other books, Isaiah, Psalms, Proverbs, they're actually adding to scripture and they didn't agree with that. So they looked at them as heretics. And so what you ended up with was these Samaritans in the midst of all of these Gentile Samarians, but these Samaritans were the keepers of this encapsulated faith that it looked like when they were delivered out of Egypt. They came up with a fourfold creed, these Samaritans. This creed was one God, Yahweh, one prophet, Moses, one book, the Torah, the first five books, and one place, Mount Gerizim. One God, one prophet, one book, one place. And they look at the fellow brothers and cousins in Judea as heretics because they actually lived life quite different and practice worship quite differently. So when you look then at what's going on in Judah and, we, and it brings us to this story that we're gonna look at, what we see is by the time that you know, we're, we're looking at Jesus day in, in John chapter four, the Pharisees have come to prominence. The Pharisees are a group of Judeans here living in Judah and uh, they are focused on purity. So they've taken the Torah and the prophets, and they've said, we've got so many people in exile, so many Israelites in different places. How do we then practice the temporal purity laws in the various contexts? How do we practice it here in Jerusalem? How does it need to look when you're in Babylon and a Jew trying to worship there? How does it need to look when you're all in all these diasporic places in different contexts? How do we need to translate this? And they were quite good at it. But their focus was on purity. And so this is a bit of a scene that's set up, sort of a a context that leads into our passage, because we've got here almost a thousand years that exists between the time of, you know, the Israel nation is founded and the time that we're coming up on this scene. And in that thousand years, there's this split between cousins and they start to view each other as heretics. And in addition to that, over a thousand years of that festering and toxifying, they begin to develop some pretty nasty stereotypes against each other. So so while one side, the Samaritans, looked at the Jews, the Judeans, as heretics, the Jews, the Judeans, looked at the Samaritans and labeled them as mixed breed and labeled them as people who just mix in a bunch of religions, trying to equate them with the Gentile Samarians in that area. And if you look in some of the Talmuds, the Babylonian Talmud that, that governed the life and the culture and the thought of Jewish people, what it actually says there is something quite horrendous when it comes to Samaritans and particularly Samaritan women. And I quote, it says, Samaritan women are menstruants from the cradle. Samaritan women are menstruants from the cradle. What that means is they're forever menstruating. Keep in mind, they are focused on purity. And here's what they're saying about Samaritan women. And so they've got this truly negative attitude that exists. They've got something codified in their constitution that governs their life, that, that, down, that actually denigrates Samaritan women. And, and here we come on the scene then of this meeting where Jesus is waiting by a well without a drinking cup and along comes a Samaritan woman with a drinking cup, with a drinking bucket. That is the scene. Jewish men despised Samaritan men. But even worse than a Samaritan man would be a Samaritan woman because of the association with impurity, uncleanness. Not only would they not handle anything that a Samaritan woman would touch, they couldn't imagine drinking from the same cup. Just kill them now, Lord. That is just something that they would not even fathom and this is the scene that we enter upon. So in, verse chap- in verse, chapter four, verse three, Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired out by his journey was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to buy food in the city. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask of me a woman of Samaria, ask a drink of me a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give you a drink, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Let's pause there for a moment. And, and not miss how extreme the division is that Jesus actually is setting up with this. A Jew, and, and when I say Jew, I know sometimes we, we sort of, uh, it, it can be hard to follow because what, what, what the premise and what I'm actually conveying is they're all Israel. But in Judea, the Southern Kingdom, they, they are identified as Jews, Judah, Judea, Jews. In the northern kingdoms that have been sent into exile, we call them lost tribes, but they are Israel as well. And we've got this woman who represents Samaritans who are Israel living in Samaria, and they exist to this day. And she says, a Jew, a, a Judah person comes and asks of me a Samaritan woman, and I know what you guys think about us, and we have some thoughts about you. And it is absolutely extreme. And it's just like God, isn't it? To to use the most extreme division in order to make a point for us today. Consider the opening of this passage though. And this is one where I think we may overlook sometimes. And this is where I ask us to give maybe some fresh ears and maybe a fresh look at this. What's referred to in verse five? It says, so he came to a Samaritan city called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob and Joseph are actually named in the opening of this passage. And I don't think that's by mistake. And I would say, please go and give this a read as as we get through the scripture and later through the week. Um, And use as a frame, use as a lens for understanding this woman, the lens of Joseph and Jacob and what we know about Joseph and Jacob. Uh, let, let's start with Joseph. Joseph, if you sum up his life, here's somebody, a young man anointed by God, but you know what? He faced some really difficult life experiences. He struggled. His brothers sold him into slavery. He was a slave. He actually then found himself in Potiphar's house. Um, and then that went afoul because Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and he ran away. She made up a story. He got thrown in prison. So now he's an inmate. He's a prisoner but yet God empowered him and he rose to the highest levels of, of, in the government, all to save lives and save Israel. All to save lives, particularly save Israel in the famine that would come. And I say, keep this frame in mind as we actually look at this woman, because we will see something very similar, because we're talking about people who actually endure suffering in life that is done to them. God takes the suffering that they've endured transforms it turns it to good in order to save lives very similar to big annie we can see in this same woman but i think a lot of us sometimes have this set or this frame that we use that this woman was a woman of ill repute because we remember jesus saying to her hey you've had five husbands and the person who you're with now is not your husband at all and what we do with that is we take it to say Here's a lady who's a lady of ill repute. She actually is sleeping around. The person who she's with now is not even her husband. And I want to say, hold that, hold that, because there's not a whole lot of evidence for that. Now, I'm not gonna say we're gonna toss that out, but I'm gonna say, but let's look at this with with some fresh eyes for a bit. What we know about the Samaritans is that they were ultra conservative. These are not behaviors that would be (laughs) tolerated in their society. This lady, being a Samaritan in conversation with the Lord is referring to scripture. She knows the Torah. That is not in becoming inconsistent with somebody who is of ill repute and sleeping around. And so what we can then probably surmise maybe a little bit more accurately, given that this is how they actually look at this passage in that part of the world where they continue to have Samaritans, where they continue to live in these cultures, is what is likely going on is that we're looking at a lady who for no fault of her own, her husband's have either died or have left her and divorced her, her, but she has experienced heartache repeatedly in the process of the closest relationships. Heartache repeatedly in the process of her closest relationships. Not once, not twice, five times. if we look at what that can do to an individual. Some of us know if you've ever gone through a breakup, my goodness, if you've ever gone through a divorce, those can be some lonely times. And I've, I've heard you know, from, from more than a few, you know that I obviously, am a, a therapist, so I talk to people all the time, and these are the things that we are talking about. And when people go through the worst heartache and the heartbreaks, they, they, they don't typically reach out to other people. They go inward. And these are times where if they go inward because they have a faith and a trust in God, oh my goodness, it becomes really intense, their relationship with the Lord. They, 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 they engage God in ways. You know, they're, they're searching the scriptures. They're in prayer constantly. And God will do more in those seasons probably than in, in their lives in terms of just cultivating and developing a faith in them than, than maybe they can experience in years when things are actually not so bad. God, God can take any situation and, and, and do something with it, but these are painful situations. And as somebody who would be a Samaritan going through these situations, and, and keep in mind, Samaritan women in the, these ancient faiths, as Israel practiced it, they could not divorce husbands. Husbands divorce them. They were on the receiving end of these things. And so it's just unlikely that you've got a lady who's just bed-hopping here, what's likely happening is she's on the receiving end of heartbreak repeatedly and repeatedly, and in each successive heartbreak, I can imagine this is where, this is all Rick now, this is not scripture, this is me sort of understanding sort of dynamics and people giving you Rick, all right, I can understand how somebody who is a believer then really leans into the Lord, how the prayers become fervent, how she's searching and trying to understand what is going on here, Lord how am I supposed to navigate this? How do I make sense of this in the arc of the life that, that you've set before me? And with each successive heartbreak, there are things that she has to do because she's a Torah follower. And these are things that if you've got to engage some of these rituals, you know, women don't, women might have to do it once if they lose a husband. And, and, but imagine five times, it's the repetition of having to engage these rituals around these heartbreaks and she is tired and she is tired. And that is what is being captured in her conversation with the Lord. Because as she pulls in, I can imagine that she's been in an ongoing conversation with the Lord, not just at this well, but for years around this heartbreak. As a matter of fact, I can imagine, maybe even earlier that morning, she was in a conversation with God, grappling. And this is where I think of Jacob, who wrestled with the Lord. And he's mentioned in the outset of the scripture, and when you've got somebody who's an ongoing, long wrestling with God and engagement with God, you know, God's going to honor that somehow. And so I can imagine in her, her ongoing grappling with the Lord around her life circumstances, you know, God probably then directs her, we'll go to the well. I would imagine God directed her to do that. And when she goes to the well, little did she know she's gonna continue the conversation. And so while we look at this scripture as, oh wow, Jesus struck up a conversation, no, I would imagine there's something that probably felt kind of familiar in this conversation to this lady because it's a conversation that no doubt she'd been having for years with this same person, if you get what I'm saying. And so Jesus just picks it up at this point and Jesus engages her in a way where he catches her ear. But, but, but the, the, the packaging is one of Judean, Samaritan, a thousand years of animosity and division, that God is going to bring down. And so if you read the scripture, and it looks like they're talking about water and a well, and how does Jesus get the water because he doesn't have a bucket? Make no mistake, this lady who is not necessarily in the position because of the pain that she's been in to just invite people into her inner world is speaking about issues of faith. She has grappled with the Lord. When you think about water in this passage, think about faith. Jesus is saying, if you knew who it is that's asking you, and you've been asking, and you've been asking, and you've been asking over the years, and here we are, and now's the time, you'd have asked him, give you the faith that allows you to not have to continue to stay on this rhyme and continue to come back to the rituals in the same way, continue to have to then re- live out these heartbreak and these rituals, that, that treadmill that you've been on. You don't have to stay on it. The time is now here for something new, for something different. And something about this doesn't cause the woman to repel, but it's what she needs to hear and she leans in and then she starts to ask him more questions. And these questions are the questions that are the questions for her. There's something about this person who she's talking to that the, the, what she's hearing and what she's getting sounds good. And then she leans in with her deeper questions. And so we get into this part of the scripture in 16, where then Jesus says, you know what? Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband what you have said is true the woman then responds i see that you're a prophet enlightenment for her our ancestors and she brings up another piece another question worship on this mountain um and you say as jews the place is jerusalem and so she she's let me pause just to explain this piece and how we can sometimes go left with this and and left is not necessarily bad but i'm telling there are many many people in other parts of the world who have this culture and and they take it a different way. And what's going on here? I think we typically have this default where we look at personal responsibility and we say, okay, you have done something. And we look at Jesus as in calling this woman out for her sin because this woman is now husband swapping. And nothing in the context and nothing in the tradition would even permit that. what Jesus might actually be saying is, hey, I see what has happened to you. You've had husband after husband after husband. And what Jesus is actually saying in the continuation of the conversation that they've been having, I was there the whole time. I hadn't abandoned you. I know exactly what's going on. This lady did not lead with this. This is the last thing that she would do is to actually bring out this stuff. And Jesus is going there saying, hey, I see you. I see what has been done to you. I see how you have suffered in this, what she needed to hear. And then she leans in with further questions. Well, these are the things I've been grappling with in terms of worship. And I've been on this treadmill. So what is the right worship? Is it here? Is it there? You seem to have this, this uncanny understanding what's going on. And Jesus responds to her then, You know, it's not about here or there. It's not about whether you worship in Mount Gerizim. It's not about whether you worship in Jerusalem, but there is something new we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And Jesus is now talking about himself. He draws it to himself. And what's interesting is now God is going to lay out for her. There are some places where you do misunderstand scripture. The Samaritans are looking at scripture from the Torah. They don't have the prophets in the writings. And then when Jesus says things like, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know, salvation is from the Jews. There's gotta be something that she can connect with in terms of what Jesus is saying with that. And that something, then you've got to go back to the first five books, because that is what she knows, the Torah. And when you look in the Torah and it's talking about um, the blessings of Judah, the Jews, what she would understand Jesus to be saying, he's, she's, he's talking about Judah, Judeans, the Jews, what they know in the Torah, you, you, can, you can find in scripture um, when it's talking about Judah being a lion's wealth and the scepter will never depart from Judah, that is in her scriptures. And what then they would understand by that is they would understand that the, the the concept of salvation, which is not how we think about salvation, which is we're saved you know, spiritually. They think about it just like the, the Jews thought about it back then, which is military conquest over our enemies. And, and in the Torah, it says, Judah is going to deliver that for Israel. And so what she's hearing Jesus say is, the salvation that you think is actually through Jews, through Judah. And she's, she agrees, yes, that is absolutely the case. But the hour is coming where the worship is not going to be here or there it's going to be in spirit and in truth and so they get into this conversation that starts to unpack the things of scripture and it starts to then shed light on things that she's struggled with and things and questions that she's asked the lord this long ongoing conversation that's been there for years things are now starting to be unfolded and come out for this lady and eventually we get to a place where The disciples come back but by this time this lady has heard enough to understand that could this be messiah now they don't have same concept of messiah if you just stick to samaritan torah for them the idea of messiah um, is more like remember they don't have prophets and all but when you go back to the books of books of moses what you'll find is god making a promise to the Israelites, that at some point he's going to raise up a prophet, not not Moses, a different prophet from among his people. And that prophet will teach them and proclaim the things of God to them. So remember their creed, one God, (laughs) one prophet, but yet the Torah predicts, but God is going to raise a prophet. And so this is their idea of Messiah. Somebody is coming. And so, so she locks into that. Could this be him? Because everything that he said, and he's been able to tell me the things that have happened. And she runs off to the people when the, Masa- when, when, when the disciples return, and she leaves her, her, her water bucket, and she runs to the other Samaritans of the town, and she, she proclaims, you know, hey, come, come see this guy. And, and in our scriptures, it says, he's told me everything I've ever done, or everything I ever did. But I'm going to say, pause for a moment. We, we, we read it that way, but you can translate this very easily and very faithfully to, he told me everything that was ever done to me. If you actually look at the Greek on this one, the word done is poeo, you know, and that is there. It's, it's, it's translated done, did, absolutely. But if you've got an American Standard uh, Bible, what you'll see is the have that precedes it is actually in italics, which means it's not in the actual original document. It's something that's implied. And so we've implied things as personal responsibility. It's something that she, she, she's saying, he's told me everything I've ever done, having five husbands. And, and you see how we can go places with that given the frame that we bring to it. But in other parts of the world, in the different cultures, they're looking at it as, no, what was actually done to her? This is what the Lord has actually revealed. And she's giving witness and testimony to come see this person, who's told me everything that I've ever suffered, everything that's ever done to me. And you guys know what that is because I'm a part of this community. Could this be Messiah? And number one, and then I go back to the Joseph lens on this one. No matter what Joseph faced, whether imprisonment, whether enslavement, Joseph kept his integrity. He followed God's principles. He followed the law. And as a result, he was respected, In prison, He ran the prison. As an enslaved person, He ran Potiphar's house. Even when he was elevated and empowered, he ran the government. Pharaoh depended on him. He was respected. And the same thing applies to this lady because as she goes to tell the people of the city, the other Samaritans, they listen, they obey her. They would not actually have that same response given the nature of their culture if she was a woman of ill repute. So there's there's plenty of evidence to suggest on this one that this is a lady who very much like Joseph had endured suffering upon suffering upon suffering, continued to hang in there and follow God's principles to stay faithful to the Lord. And then all of a sudden God shows up one day, continuing the conversation, continuing the wrestling like Jacob, and then gives her something. He transforms her pain into something that would be the salvation for her and her people, Israel. So when she goes to tell the other people in the village and they come back, they hear Jesus. They then invite Jesus to stay for an extra two days before Jesus departs and they believe in Jesus. Not because she has said it now, but because they've heard it for themselves. Jesus has used this woman to speak and then draw Israel to him and they are saved. Just like God used Joseph to actually save Israel in the time of famine. We know in John chapter five, Jesus only does the things that the father does, those things that he's seen the father doing. And this is the model that Jesus gives us. And we're to do the same. Jesus has taken a thousand year division and he has dismantled it. He has breached the wall of the divide between Jew and between Samaritan. And now they are one in Jesus. And that is the solution to division. It's the unity that comes about through Jesus Christ. And nowhere else should that be reflected more, more, more saliently than in the church, than in the church. And we have such a long way to go, obviously, but, but this is the vision of the kingdom that God gives us. And God gives us not just the vision, but he empowers us to do so. And while, I, while you, know, you, you will hear me say, you know, the, the work of the kingdom is not easy work, it's not Pollyannish at all, but the reality of it is this, but God has already accomplished the work. God has already accomplished the work through Jesus Christ. We get the chance now to live into it, to live it out, and to see the kingdom established more and more and more. So as you think about this passage over the week, I would say, I know this is a very different take on it, and I'm I'm actually not telling you anything new. I would say be be very leery if somebody's coming to you with something new from scripture. Um, None of you are little Christians, right? But I'm telling you, the kingdom of God, in other places, in other communities, Mm -hmm. would share a culture with what we actually read. Mm -hmm. This is how they see it. And if we can develop those connections and those relationships, how I, I feel like I've been blessed to do when I get to travel to these different places, you will see just how many, how rich God's movement and God's work is from the various facets that we get an opportunity to sit and witness it from. And so consider, consider this, consider this frame with this woman. And Jesus said, the things that he sees the father do, he does, but these are also the things that he expects us to do as well. And when we think about division, and as we navigate the next two or three months or time thereafter depending on how things go. And the seem to accentuate themselves. Remember the vision and what is expected and required of the church of Christ believers. And I'm not talking about religion at this point. Now I'm talking about what does it mean to actually live the kingdom? And that is how you make the distinction. Because religion unfortunately has been used to actually build the dividing wall too often. But the kingdom, the, the divine of Christ, Breaches and climbs over and grows over the dividing wall. It, it it tears it down, and that is what we are to be about. And I'll, I'll I'll close with one example, and I'll say you know I mentioned that I've been working with this group in, in Lebanon, um, and, and there's such an example of this kingdom principle of how they're actually tearing down the dividing walls, um, and it's miraculous and it's amazing, and and I share it with you just because you know we're we're all connected and and. I get the opportunity to actually go and witness, you know, but at the same time, you know, this is a testimony that I think God would have for us. And you being my family in Christ, you know, I, I think you're there with me, you know, because you support me and you pray for me. And, and so we're, we're all in this together. But there's a group there that I'm working with. Um, and you know that they've had that huge blast that happened over the past over a couple of weeks back. Um, and with that blast, uh, which you all saw online or on the news, um, tremendous, horrendous. And it leveled parts of the city, and those parts of the city that it did not level, it, it basically ruined the homes. And so you've got three hundred thousand displaced and homeless people because of that blast. But here's the here's the problem with it: you just can't go and live someplace else in Lebanon. That's not how things are structured. Lebanon is marked by centuries of sectarian division. You have Sunni Muslims who hate Shia Muslims. And if you wanted to look at what is the most vehement animosity that you can find, take people who claim to worship the same God, but they worship a little bit differently. That is exactly what we're seeing with the Samaritans and the Judeans. And we're seeing it play out with Sunni and Shia. And when we think about sort of the worst of Islam, we're talking about the people who are the, uh, the, the ISIS folks. They kill way more Muslims than they do anybody else because of the division between Muslims. That is what's going on with that. But they've got this division, Sunni, Shia. They've got Christians there as well. They've got Druze. They've got these four different groups and then sects amongst those four different groups. And they are very, very serious about the sectarianism. You cannot just go and live because you're not welcome in certain areas. And, And they've come through years of violence because of it. So it's not safe to go live other places. So what do you do when you're displaced? Well, then you've got to figure out how you can stay within your sect someplace and figure out how you get there. That's the nature of what's going on there. Because of the blast though, it killed 300, but it blew all of this glass from this high rise miles. And so what they're dealing with is lacerations and what those lacerations result in is people needing blood transfusion because of the bleeding. That's the nature of this disaster. The group that I'm working with there is known as blood for peace. Blood for Peace was started by two Christians who wanted to actually tear down the dividing walls between people in their country. What they've known though is because they've been in years of civil conflict and civil war, they don't have a national blood bank. And so they thought, let's develop one. But how do you develop something from scratch and this is our context. One group is not gonna give to the other if they know it's going to, the blood's gonna go here. Well, then they've set up a system whereby which Hey, we are taking anybody who would donate blood, the only condition is it's got to be a free gift of donation, and we can give it to whoever needs the blood across sectarian lines. And they've been at this for a number of years now, anticipating it's just a matter of time before we go back into civil conflict and free fall again, where this will be needed. Little do they know with this blast, this is where they would be needed because of the demand for blood. And what they told me was within the first 24 hours, the demand of blood was so high within the country, they don't have a national blood bank, but they were able to fill all the requests for blood at the different hospitals within the first 24 hours because so many people from the outer regions outside of Beirut came in to donate blood because that's what they could do if they could do nothing else. The blood is going across sectarian lines. Sunni is saving Shia, Shia is saving Sunni, Christians are saving Shia and Sunni Muslims and vice versa. And this is how they see the kingdom at work. These three gifts of blood tearing down divisions between people who've had thousand, a thousand years of division between them. That is kingdom work. That is what we are called to today. So as we look forward to the next few months in this country, just let us take heart that number one nothing is new, this is an old, old, old problem that God has given us an answer to. The challenge is how do we as the church continue to live out that model that Christ has set before us? How do we continue to engage our world in our context around us? Applying godly principles, living out kingdom principles, seeing the evidence of which the dividing walls between people are coming down and starting to mirror the unity then that God has established through Jesus Christ between humanity and and himself and how then that then applies to everything. When you look in the Psalms, what that finished vision of the kingdom looks like is the entire world focused on and worshiping and honoring Jesus Christ. The nations are doing that. The Jews, the, I would say the Americans, Lord willing, were around in that time. Um, The world is looking to Jesus Christ. That is peace that exists as a result of that, that's the vision for the kingdom. Now, Christ is going to establish that when he comes back once and for all, but we are to be living into that. What a challenge that is. But thank God and praise God, God has done the work through Jesus Christ. He's empowered us through the Holy Spirit and has called us into unity as a church. Amen, amen. Let me pray us out if you don't mind. And and after the prayer, We've got a few moments to, to talk amongst ourselves and just fellowship. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for opportunities, Lord, to reflect upon you and what you've done, Lord. Lord, knowing that no matter what divisions we experience in this life, no matter how uncomfortable our situations may seem and feel to us, Lord, you are there in the midst, Lord, and that you make a way. Father God, you call us to greatness, Lord but in that greatness that you called us to, Lord, you've already done the work. Lord, help us, Lord, to be faithful to the calling that you've begun in us, Lord, because we know that you are faithful to bring about that which you've begun in us. Lord, as we uh, have the opportunity to worship together from around this nation, Lord, that's uh, an unusual thing for us at Joy Christian Center to have people from different states dial in, Lord, but we thank you and praise you for that as well, Lord, as sort of a testament and testimony to what you call us to, Lord. Or that uh, as we look around our brothers and sisters, Lord, they, they should look different from us, Lord. They should come from different backgrounds, Lord. But we should be in touch with how united we are in Christ, Lord, and the great things that you will do and the testimony that you will use to bring the world to you. Lord, as we prepare to go into the week, Lord, help us to remember these things. Lord, help us to search the scriptures, Lord. Help us to realize, Lord, that you, have you love us, Father. And for those of us who deal with division within our own households, divisions that we feel so adamant and strongly about, that may be family divisions, which are the most painful, that even with those, Lord, you give us a model, Lord, that even a thousand years of intoxicated division between cousins, Lord, is not enough to keep you from working your transformation power and uniting and bringing us back together. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, Lord, help us to bring about the kingdom. Help us to consider the kingdom first, Lord, knowing that all other things will be added. Amen.